0: I end up in Indonesia. So that's a Muslim country. It's very easy for them to reach out to me and then start it again to causing extra troubles. So one option is left, gambling. Gambling of my life, which is deal with the human smuggler and then pay $5,000, Australian dollars, uh, sorry, American dollars. And then jump on a boat. Before we continue with Arash's story, let me tell you a little bit about the global Stories That Stir movement. Our mission is to facilitate a revolution of human connection through storytelling. Our Sydney events are held on the third Tuesday of every month at the Robin Hood Hotel in Waverley. So if you're in Sydney local, come and check out our next event. And while you're at it, every event thereafter. And now to stir things up. Our next story is one that's going to be quite hard to listen to. So I have to warn you about that. So Arash is an Iranian refugee who's been through some crazy shit that I think every Australian needs to know about. Because we hear the headlines, we hear all kinds of things in the media. But how often do we actually get to listen to someone who has been through an experience that he's been through and realised what the hell is going on. I'm not going to say anything more. I'm going to welcome to the stage, Arash Shirmohammadi. As I was standing here in front of you, with the broken toes, with a broken finger, with the broken jaw, but obviously you can't see because I had a surgery. I had a few different operation as well because of a torture and traumatizer I had before. How did I end up here with carrying this much injury, pain. And um, obviously at the moment, I'm on a, a thousand milligram of a painkiller to be able to hold myself physically to be among a few lovely people. The thing is, I remember, it was a very dark and um, old place with one chair in the middle, a very uncomfortable. Three gentlemen's, which is one at the front, two at the back. I get surrounded by them. They call it triangle torture. That uh, room does have only one um, lamp. The fellow sent the, the old one under um, on the ceiling and then um, no windows at all. A very short and small door at the end. And they started questioning why you are turning your back against of Islam. Why don't you want to be a Muslim? What they've done to you and who is encouraging you to become a Baha'i? So the thing is I remember from the left and right before I even open my mouth, their punches are landing on my face. Till um my face is getting numb and then um, I couldn't feel my jaw at all. Then they didn't satisfy. Still keep like pushing and asking. That was a really cold room. Um the floor was cement and then I was there with the barefoot. I could feel how hard and cold is it. Um the only warm things I could fear uh, I feel it on, on that moment it was my blood which is dripping from my nose and my face on my chest even they didn't let me to enjoy that little bit of moment um, and they started to splashing their water on my face and I started again asking a question when they are not getting satisfied that was the last thing um, they started smashing and um, cracking my toes one by one with they boot. I couldn't hear my bones are cracking and I passed out because the level of pain I had it was too much. Well, I born and raised in a Muslim family in Iran, which is my father is brainwashed by the intelligence services. So before the Iranian Revolution, they're targeting the university. So he was one of the student. The best place to change the people's mind and standing against of the a kingdom and um, education is the best place to target and change the people's mind. So he was one of the victims, but they turned him to a um, machine. You can't call him an animal because animal have feeling. He doesn't have any feel. He turned to the machine and started to become a very radical Muslim. So every time I remember, I was like five, six years old. The first heavy slap I got from him because I wasn't happy to follow and memorize the Quran. Then every time, even five minutes being late to attending the prayers, he started to punishing my mom as well in front of my eyes. One time he started to bashing her till her hands are broke. Why? Because I was late for five minutes. So how can I tolerate all this cruelty? And then not questioning. So what sort of fate is that? You're able to hurt the child. You're able to hurt the woman. And then if you say something, they're going to say, oh, you're against of God. You're against of humanity. How is it possible? If you're not able to ask a question challenging the faith and then how you can call yourself believer, you have to believe it from your heart. So as I raised this torture and traumatized continuously be there. And I'm the youngest son in my family. So he was put the all pressure on me to make something out of me. Some of those like brainwashed people, but I never let him to touch my soul. Till he reached to that, um, stage which is he didn't let me to even sleep you have to memorize otherwise you're not able to sleep you're not able to um um, drinking or anything so I said okay I'm done enough is enough I was only 14 years old and I said I prefer to die but not following you because this is 100% cruelty so what was his reaction he started to grabbing the chain and non-stop hitting me so then after I passed out and he get obviously tired I just ran away to the police station. Well, as all of you knows, police supposed to help you, support you, give you at least a shelter till you can find yourself or someone can help you. But there is totally different. With uh, lots of bruises on my face and a bleeding in age of 14, I went to the police station. The sergeant came and asked me, what is the problem with you? Who did bash you? Did someone rape you? I said, no, that's my father. So, so he came up with the two questions. Is he alcoholic? Nah. Is he using drugs? No. So what is his problem? I don't want to pray. Then he said, what? Say, yeah, I don't want to pray. I don't want to follow him. He said, man, you're crazy. You're supposed to respect your dad. I said, look what he done to me. Should he treat me properly? Should he show me love and show me in a different way? But he never listened. So because of his position, As soon as he heard my name and my family name, rang someone else, I don't know where, from the intelligence services, less than 20 minutes, he came. And then both of them start to, I'm hitting me and uh, giving extra, extra punishment. So that was the last day I stay at home. I become homeless in the age of 14 years. So imagine as a teenager, I don't have any place to go. It's very hard. It was winter. And then I don't have any shelter. I don't have any support. Only my sister, but... He was married. How can I stay for all time there? He has a own life. So I end up to spending around two years sleeping at the public toilet in the park, running around because they're uh, drug addicted. They're like sexual abuse and prostitute around. They're looking for someone new to just make them addicted to selling and abuse and those things in the criminal words. So through the school, finally, I found a job in a grocery shop. And then the the owner of that shop was very kind to me and then led me to sleep there as well. So step by step, I found different jobs as well and try to like manage myself to be able to pay off uh, my um, school fees and the locations and everything. Then um, as I promised my mom, I have to make something out of myself. Still, I have that her voice in my mind. Son, if you're living, that's okay, but do something I, I can always proud of you and when I put my head on the pillow, I feel happy. You're not doing wrong to anyone else, same as your dad and others. So I try to stay in this path. I went to university, I studied really hard. I was working 16 hours and at the same time, I study. I had a two bachelors and I studied a master as well. So while I was working hard and study, I never had a childhood. I never had any time for myself to like playing cards or drinking or party or nor anything. Just work, work, work and I study. Then during the time, um, I got blessed and introduced to someone who I am showed me the Baha'i faith. And I get to know this faith. What is this? It's totally different from Islam. You can ask a question. You can see equality. You can see the respect for the woman. You can see respect for the child. Education is very important for them. And then the main things for them is the national language, which is everybody when they speak the same language you can have equality you can have more peace because there is no misunderstanding so this is really touched my heart and I said this is my field I'm going to study more but after a while intelligence saves the same as always again show up so what's going on do you know you're going to be untouchable they're starting to warning me you're going to lose all your right as a human you're losing your identity you're losing your future and you become nothing. So I didn't listen because why I have to listen to the people who are the same as my dad. So I continue joining those classes listening to them. Then they asked me again. They started to hurting me, torturing me. As I mentioned at the beginning, they done the um, triangle torture. And the next stage was threatening my family and my loved one. So I know they are going to kidnap. I don't care about my life. But to saving them, I have to leave. But where? Look at the Iranian passport. doesn't have any value at all. Only a few Muslim countries, less than your like five fingers you can fly without the visa, which is Malaysia, Indonesia, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. That's it. Oh, sorry, and Iraq. So, because it's controlled by them. I end up um, leaving and then, because I don't have any choice, right? If you're applying for a visa, it takes time. Um, I end up in... Malaysia first, and then through one of my friends, he booked everything, and he said, now your name is on a blacklist, you have to leave less than 24 hours. So i done that. I end up in Indonesia, so that's a Muslim country. It's very easy for them to reach out to me and then start it again to causing extra troubles. So one option is left, gambling. Gambling of my life, which is deal with the human smuggler and then pay a $5,000 um, Australian dollars, uh, sorry, American dollars, and then jump on a boat. As they claim, it will be a three-floor boat. It's a really nice one. Don't worry about everything. We will look after you. They kept us in a safe house, and then they took away our phone. They took away our, um, like, all um, money and everything. They said, just ready for the time. We will put you in a boat, and then you will just be free. Look, other people, they. Just jump on a boat and they end up in Australia and they have a lovely life. And it was true because that time Australia was open the doors, welcoming the refugees. No matter how they reach to Australia, back door or from the airport, steal their refugees and try to like processing them and give them a chance. So I wasn't aware there is a new rules and policy 19 July, which if after 19 July 2013, you're reaching Australia, you're no more welcome here. As Scott Morrison and other um, ministers are saying, if even Jesus come through the um, ocean and a boat, we are not allowed them to come to our border. Anyway, so we jump on a boat. You can't believe it. It was a small fishing boat, broken and old. Like I think it's worth maybe 50 American dollars max. So 110 people went um Monica mentioned there are 110 people are here, the audience. It exactly triggered my mind. 110 passengers. We were just left Indonesia to Christmas Island with the hope of freedom. We're gambling our life. We had 21 kids as well, teenagers and also infants. We started our journey. It was middle of the night. The ocean was starting playing up. The wave was 15 meters. You can't believe it. It's really horrible and scary. And then you're like on a piece of wood. The engine doesn't work properly. Everyone is screaming and calling God or whatever they believe. Kids are like passing out through this, um, the scream of the other adults. And there is no hope. Sorry. There is no hope at all. Then you could see the last board when they are sank. The piece of woods around you. The dead bodies around you. You could hear the voice and the scream of those ghosts still around you. It's very scary. And then, so you're in between. Am I going to make it or not? So we reached to the free ocean. So free ocean is the place normally like the Australian Navy will come. And that time, they never try to return you back. But we are the first victim. They try to return us back. They brought, like, the pumping as well, and then generator. Oh, we can send you back to Malaysia. Then they left us. Again, we called and say, look, there are kids here. Please come back. One of the doctors there, the lady came, and then when she opened the lid, she saw that 20 kids are next to each other sleeping, and they're, like, begging for help. She said, that's okay, come with us. We spent two nights on the um, Navy ship. It was horrible. They didn't even let us going down, and... At least using the toilet, anything. That's it. They're just like going around the Christmas island. It was Sunday. And then I, I remember there was like flush, uh, flying um, fishes. It just like hitting my face. I left and right. And the kids are begging for a little bit of food. Nothing there. Nothing at all. So we reached there. So the first thing, you can see the whole island. Oh, my God. I'm safe. Now there is difference. That's the Christmas island. They talk about it. The, the um agent or other people back in Indonesia, and I can see how beautiful is it. Lots of trees and people are just getting the sun and like nice view, everything's totally different. This is a piece of heaven. So I went there. They're just like, I'm um, asking our name and then immediately they turn it to the number. So mine was, because my board number is 815, so they turn it to TOX. My number was 56. Okay. So from there, I lose 100% my identity and my name. Every time they come and knock the door, talks 46, talks 46, then what? Where is my name? They never called you through your name. Anyway, it passed. So they just transfer us um, to the van, and then the interpreters are coming up. Well, welcome to Australia. Exactly. That's the first thing I learned in English. Welcome to Australia, which is, you're not welcome to Australia. This is a new rules from immigration. If you come to our border after 13 July 2019, you're never ever welcome to this border. Okay. But we never heard about it. Otherwise I'm not going to start this gambling and end up to this horrible challenge and policy. And they said, "Well, this is the things you have to face." A week after, we saw the first immigration um officer. She said really proudly and saying, "Look, I don't care who you are, what is your background. I'm here writing your future. You're a piece of shit. You're nothing to me. You came illegally and you're no more welcome in our Australia and our border. And I said, well, I didn't know that. I was in a safe place and safe house. They took away everything, the TV, the the mobile phone. How do you expect me to understand what's going on around the world? And how do you expect me to understand the Indonesian language? Do you want me to, like, um, have a subtitle? They don't have her in a, a subtitle there. So she said, whatever, you have to just end up in offshore processing. Okay, I'm not here for a fight, I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover. That's okay. Let's go. We end up in offshore processing for seven years. That was a piece of hell. Nauru. You can't even understand, this is 21-kilometer island, exactly the same size of Guantanamo. We will end up under the plastic tent. There is no shower. Only two minutes for you every single day. Every fortnight, you had only 10 to 15 minutes to contact your loved one and family. Every week, only an hour internet if you want to check your Facebook. That's it. What is the activity? What is the future? Nothing. Okay, what about our other boatmates who are left in Christmas Island? That's okay. They will come. They will come. So in the middle of 2014, Immigration called everyone. Okay, what's going on? All the ERT teams, which is, um, we call them, address and train, they're coming there. And then we surrounded by them. They brought a big TV and we saw saw Scott Morrison. Those who came to Australia, those who remain in offshore, they never ever can see Australia or welcome here or getting processed in Australia. Those who remain in onshore, that's okay. We will welcome them and give them a chance. What? They are my board mate. We pay the same person to come here. How is that possible? This is not a discrimination. This is not against of human rights. They don't care. This is what it is. Accept it. Then, okay, how about us? Wait for the third country. This is indefinite detention. Even if you are not signed and you are not accepted, they don't care. You have to wait. Okay. So... After I become an international refugee back in 2015, I started to work with a different organization. When you're like having some skills and can be able to speak a few languages, they immediately hired you. What I was facing there, what I was witnessed there child abuse, rape, torturing, theft. And then when the locals are attacking us, what we can do? Nothing. Because they said that the police officer came to us and said, Look, it can be my cousin. It can be my grandfather. I can't be against of them. So self-defense, do whatever you can. One of the crueler things I was witness, one of my best friends in age of 25, in front of UNHCR, they came there in 2016 um, to visiting the compound and tick the boxes. This is a lovely place. As in Channel 9, they always said, oh, they're lying. They're protesting for nothing. They have the best like equipments, everything, and a hospital. But that's a lie. So they came there for the level of the frustration. He was only 25. He set himself on a fire. So what's happening? They took him to the hospital. There is no medication. There is no specialist. There is no doctor, nothing at all. And then they keep us away. All the police, guards, everyone came. No one allowed to be there. I was on a duty. I tried to reach out in the hospital. They didn't let me because see, I'm a refugee, not one of the experts. So what's happening? He passed. He died in Nauru. And then they said, no, he's still alive. Because the jet landing two days later. So they took his dead body in Australia and his partner. Very cheap. No one knows. So this is keep continue, continue, continue. And then I I couldn't cope. Because from one side, I was walking in the shoes of expertise. Every single day we had a meeting with the managers, line manager. They said, Oh, this is the rules. You have to understand. We are not going to give no longer services to the refugees, to the kids, to the parents, this and that. And then we get suffered um, as a staff. And then from the other side, I was working in refugees. I'm still refugee. I feel pain. I can see all these cruelties and decisions in front of my eyes. What can I do? Nothing. I just had enough. I started a hunger strike. Because there is no point. Why I have to continue? For 64 days... I was just drinking water and I was between like dead, I become like sort of like a spiritually and I could see lights and hearing the things. And then a day before I die, they took me to the um, regional center and then gave me some medication. I said, oh, sign these forms. You will go to Australia. You will get the really good medication and support. I end up in Villawood detention center for three years. Keep waiting and waiting. Okay, so where is the medical treatment? Where is the freedom, where is the support? So what about my future? Oh, wait, wait, we will do your processing in inside detention. So when this is going to be end, all the criminals are coming here and there is no sign of refugees. You have to be patient. This is the one rules in Australia. Be patient. I'm not a turtle. I'm human. My life is burning. I was 26 when I reached in Christmas Island. Now I'm 38. 11 years of my life is wasted, burned in, traf- in front of my eyes. Why? Because of their cruelty. They claim we are looking for the human rights, but that's not true. In um, August 2021, finally after three years, I released. But you can't even call it a visa, community detention, which is you are prison in a house. There is a curfew for you. You're not allowed to study. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to trouble. You're not allowed to do anything. So what is the difference between even the person who is, House detained, allowed allow to work and then back. Okay, from 7 p.m., uh, you're not allowed to outside or reach out to the person who just put a navy or whatever. But for us, what I've done to the society, I'm not allowed to do anything. So we're still waiting and waiting and no sign of third country, no sign of hope. We end up to get a bridging visa in March 2023. Immediately, a week after I got my Full work right because I can work and I pay tax. I got five management positions in a different organization and company, but through one of the best, best organization, I'm asylum seekers. I got an offer to work with the ANZ Bank. I accepted. I went for an interview and then immediately called me, okay, we hire you. That's great. So why don't you give me this opportunity 11 years ago? I had more energy, I had more potential, I could have studied more, right? I can share my love and skills and faith to everyone, the whole society. Why you stop me? Because they can make money out of my blood and the people like me. And then they put everything under the bubble and then through the channel seven, nine, this and that then say, no, they're safe, they're against of you. They're terrorists, they're this, they're that. Am I a terrorist? There is no way for me to escape. That's the only way I can run away from torturing to saving my family. All of these things are gone. I went through the hell and back. There are two things that hold me together, spiritually and physically. First is my faith, which is with the help of all these lovely people who are supporting me. Every single day, they're never missing a one text message. Son, are you still alive? You're in my prayers. That means a lot. I lost my family, but I have another one here. The second reason is the strangers. While I was in Norway, I started working with the racks to saving the children, the kids, and their families. So the lovely people like Barbara, at the end, they started to messaging us, calling us, and say, as an Australian, we are ashamed. This is not the right government to presenting us. We love you guys. We are here for you. They send gifts for us. Look, they have a pension and money, but look at their heart, how big is it? They gave all those, those money and their time for 22 years for us. How can I forget these things? This lovely lady, every single day, travel in age of 70, going all around Australia, pick up us, drop us here, teach us how to be surviving in Australia, feed us. And I wish those people who are there can hear and see this sort of attitude. They're a very lovely non-profit um, organization like Asylum, because they're here today. They are working voluntary, always. They're using their money, their time to looking after us. It means a lot for us. To have someone, they're welcoming us. They count us as a human. They're the people who are the first. They call me Arash. They never call me a number. That's the differences. So my message to you lovely people is everything has a consequences. We can act properly. We can be Barbara we can be Kim and others, and um, the other group. We can give a hope and love to others, give faith to others to be alive, and then we can be cruel like those prime ministers, ministers, and politicians, and dehumanize each other. At the end, it's your choice. Thank you so much for your time.